Hi everyone, and welcome along once more to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. So, onward to Silverstone. It's home to the British Grand Prix and F1's 70th anniversary Grand Prix over the next two weekends. Two huge races at one of the fastest and most awe-inspiring circuits in the world. To see these 2020 spec cars through Cops, Maggots, Beckett's Stowe is going to be phenomenal. Just so fast. But I'm also looking forward to seeing this crop of drivers do their thing as well. The grid this year is dripping with driving talent. And one of the guys I'm most looking forward to seeing through Silverstone's fast sweeps is George Russell. He's only in his second season of Formula One, but he's already established himself as one of the sport's leading lights. And I'm delighted to say that he's my guest on the show this week. After the trials and tribulations of an uncompetitive car last year, George has been pulling up trees this season, getting into Q2 in qualifying for the first time in Styria, and then following that up in Hungary. Twelve, so we are through. It's 13 seconds on the clock. Nice job. Yes, boys! Yeah, nice one. Nice one. What a moment that was, the young Briton performing heroics against cars much more competitive than his own. And as befits a guy doing extraordinary things in a racing car, he's become one of the central pillars at Williams, around which the team is building for the future. Only recently, George's boss, Claire Williams, said he's as talented as any driver who's ever driven for Williams. And that includes seven world champions. That's praise indeed from someone who doesn't dish out praise lightly. There's no doubt that George's CV is very impressive. He was GP3 champion in 2017 and F2 champion in 2018, when he beat the likes of Lando Norris and Alex Albon to the title. And as you're about to find out, he has an extremely intelligent approach to paddock politics and getting where he wants to go. And he's got a great sense of humour as well. This weekend's British Grand Prix is behind closed doors, of course. But if there were the usual 100,000 passionate fans lining the track, rest assured that many of them would be cheering for this interesting, interested, intelligent and bloody fast young driver. So get ready for stories about his rivals, his friends, his negotiations with Toto Wolff and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. George, it's lovely to have you on the show. Welcome. We're speaking, what is it, a few days after the Hungarian Grand Prix. How are you feeling after that opening triple header? Thank you. I'm, I'm feeling all right, to be honest. Obviously, a little bit drained. I think these opening three weeks has had more of an effect on people than they may have uh, expected beforehand. Definitely myself, you know, when I got home on Sunday night, I just sat on the, on the sofa and it just sort of hit me and I, I laid back and I was like, Bloody hell, I'm a little bit knackered after all of this, but really enjoyed it. Enjoyed having the two races back-to-back in Austria, obviously ending on uh, a pretty positive weekend in Hungary for us. Obviously not the exact outcome we would have wanted on Sunday, but nevertheless, you know, we, we've got a huge amount of positives to take from these opening three races. What is it about you and the Hungara ring? Because you're seriously quick there. What was it? We were 0.1 away from Q3 on Saturday. I mean, this is what the team are telling me. And I replied saying, well, I've actually never put it on pole in my career around the Hungaroring. So I don't know what it is. I think it's just a George Russell-Williams combination seems to seems to go quite well there. You know, our car, everybody knows, has its, its difficulties. Uh, some people may not know we are actually very slow on the straights because we have a lot of drag with our car. The circuit at Hungary just 
you know, all of the issues we had, the, the corner characteristics that the car struggles the most at, Hungary didn't have any of them. And it just seems to work well. So, you know, on paper ahead of the season, Hungary was always going to be our best one. We definitely were punching there. Um, so I, I think probably the first weekend in Austria was a little bit more of our realistic pace, you know, close to Q2, fighting with the Alphas and the Hasses. That's, I think when things level out, that's where we'll be. At least in a Formula One sense, I'm going to keep talking about Hungary for a bit longer because I, I'm reminded of your first test for Mercedes there back in, what was it? It was this time in 2017, wasn't it? And you broke the lap record. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> As you do on your first <laughs> F1 test. I think that was the following year, 2018, I broke when, I, when we did the lap record. But um, no, I've always, always in the Hungara ring, I've had sort of very good memories. I've always been incredibly quick there. It's been my, the circuit I've had the most amount of bad luck at, surprisingly. I think it was in Formula 2, I broke down before the race had even started and I couldn't start. In GP3, I broke down on the formation lap and I couldn't start. In Formula 3, I was leading the race and my tyre laminated and um, I had to box. So I've always been really quick there. There's just always been something that has held me back. But I guess yeah, maybe a factor why... I've been strong there the last two years has been because I've done four days of F1 testing there with Mercedes and you know loads and loads of laps in incredibly high speed and I've just got that that flow like I guess with anything practice makes perfect sort of thing. How vividly do you remember that first test in 17? I just love to get try and just get some memories of the impression the car made on you the impression the team made on you and it was also really hot I think wasn't it? Yeah, firstly, incredibly hot. I think it was 40 degrees, that test. So going in there as, you know, a young 18-year-old at the time or whatever I was, was definitely incredibly difficult. My first impression I will always remember was I came up the pit lane and I went into turn one on my opening lap, on the install lap, and I just touched the brake. My whole body and my neck jolted forward I was just not expecting at all the deceleration from the car and just how much grip it had and those opening laps you know my mind just couldn't couldn't keep up with it and it was just unbelievable it was um you know two really long tough days we were doing a huge amount of laps I loved it so much and you know it sort of motivated me even more because you know, that's what I wanted to do. I knew that's how good it was to drive a Formula One car, albeit, you know, it was Mercedes and they are the best team in Formula One and were the best team at the time. So I was incredibly privileged to have that chance. But like I said, it sort of motivated me to say, you know, I want to do this week in, week out because this is bloody awesome. Was it a sort of teacher-student relationship in those early days or how did they treat you? How did the engineers treat you? They were very welcoming from the off, I remember the first ever race I went to, they printed about 50 photos of me and Lewis from about 12 years ago where I had horrifically long hair. Lewis's hair wasn't looking great either. And they just put it all around the office. And that was my, that was my welcome into Mercedes back in uh, Azerbaijan 2017. So, you know, from that moment on, I knew that how they would treat me they're all, you know, a bunch of great guys. I love spending all of that time with them. I learned a huge amount from all of them. And, it, and it's really helped me develop through my career from GP3 into Formula 2. 
and last year, you know, they're, they're there to give me advice even today whenever I need it. So, you know, having them by my side is, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have. When did you do the deal to become part of the Mercedes Junior programme? The first conversation goes back to um, 2015, actually. So it started at Abu Dhabi, end of season testing. I was testing GP3. And my manager, Harry Soden, managed to get hold of Toto Wolf's email address. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to email him and send my CV. I didn't really ask for anything. I just wanted to introduce myself. It was late at night in Abu Dhabi. I was quite nervous in sending the email, but I thought, I've got nothing to lose here. I sent him the email, you know, hi, I'm George Russell. This is my CV. You know, it'd be great to to meet meet with you one day in the future, et cetera, et cetera. I put my phone away. And I woke up the next morning and I saw I had a response from Toto. Not only a response, it was within, I think it was within 20 minutes of receiving my email. He replied saying, thanks for your email, George. It'd be great to meet up. Here's my PA's details, arrange a meeting with him. And I was sat in his office, I think it was two months later. So that's where the initial conversation happened. But when I really became sort of a part of Mercedes, was following the 2015 season. I'd actually been unofficially the reserve driver for BMW in DTM. I did a rookie test with them and that went incredibly well. And I was on the verge of signing a full-time race seat deal with them. In the DTM? In the DTM. So this would have been the end of 2015, start of 2016, but for the drive in 2017. So a year later. So... By this point, I had sort of accepted I didn't have any backing to help me get to Formula One. At the time, none of the Formula One teams were overly interested. And I was pretty settled to say, you know, this is DTM. It was a huge salary. It's probably the next best thing to Formula One. And I was committed to going down that route. And I was here at the start of January at my parents' house, ready to sign the contract. One day, I was just laying in the bath and I got a phone call from a French guy called Gwen Lagrou, who was Esteban Ocon's manager and had been signed by Mercedes to, to head the Young Driver program. And he said to me, hi, George, I, I knew Gwen for a long time. I've just um, started working with Mercedes and you're the first guy I want to sign. And that's where it started. So it started all in the bath in, <laughs> back in 2016. And um, the conversations were ongoing. I signed a contract at the start of 2016 and officially became a driver at the start of 2017. George, what an amazing story. I'm racking my brains to think who else in Formula One has sort of inspirational moments in the bath. And I can only think of, I can only think of Gordon Murray, who was the Brabham designer for, with Bernie Eccleston in the 70s and 80s. And he said all his best ideas came to him in the bath. <laughs> but um, George, that's amazing. Did you write any other emails to, to other Formula One teams, to, to, to the Helmut Marco or someone like that at Red Bull? Or No, Toto was, was the main one. I did some simulator days with Red Bull actually back in 2012 and you know at the time I thought potentially there could be an opportunity with Red Bull in the future for whatever reasons that didn't progress um, and I didn't really think much more to it really. You were 14 in 2012. Yeah exactly. <laughs> this is going back a long time now so they had a, a couple of carters who they you know there was nothing serious there they just we did some simulated days and we saw how things were going 
And like I said, for whatever reasons, that didn't work out. And I just went about doing my own business, continued karting at the time and moved into Formula 4 and went through the ranks. And here we are today. So like I said, that, that phone call with Gwen in the bath was a little bit awkward because as you can imagine, in a bathroom, it's awfully echoey. <laughs> I think he clocked on to it pretty early what was going on and where I was. But, you know, Gwen's been by my side ever since that day. And, um, you know, like I say, a lot of this is, is down, down to him and him having this faith in me from, from the beginning. I'm sure he was getting his orders from higher up the food chain, though. I mean, I'm sure it was coming from Toto, right? Yeah, well, like I say, I think um, I'd met Toto prior to that. I met Toto in 2015. And another story, actually, with Toto was at the Autosport Awards in, at the end of 2015. So I was there just on a bit of a jolly at the end of the season. I actually had a couple of drinks and I was feeling a little bit cocky, maybe. But I was with a few of my other racing mates and I just said, oh, I'm just going to wander over and go and chat to Toto. So this was after all of the awards had happened and we were just having a really good chat and he remembered me from the meeting earlier in the year and uh, discussed about future plans, etc, etc. And as it got to 12 o'clock, one of the bouncers came over to me, directly to me. He said, hi George, I remember you from last year when you won the Autosport Awards, but you're actually too young to be here after 12 o'clock at night. I said, I'm sorry. He said, yeah, we've only got a license to allow, you know, under 18s in here until midnight. I said, I'm sorry, I'm talking to Toto Wolf here. You know, this is my future potentially. And you're all <laughs> depriving me of this opportunity. You know, he might have turned around and offered me the deal there and then. And um, <laughs> so I was there with a glass of red wine in my hand getting ushered away by a bouncer, you know, halfway through my conversation with Toto. So uh, fortunately, we had another conversation uh, a couple of months later. That's brilliant. Well, I mean, what about conversations with Toto recently? Because your stock is very high. You announced last weekend that you're staying at Williams next year. But how confident are you that you'll get to race for Mercedes in Formula One down the line? I mean, you can never predict what's going to happen in the future. You know, I've got, I've got full confidence in Mercedes that they are fully supporting me. They've made that clear from, from day one. Obviously, a lot of people can think what they want following recent decisions. But like I say, nothing has changed my relationship to with Toto, with um, the guys at Mercedes. Me and Toto had a long, socially distant breakfast together last week, you know, a couple of hours talking about everything. And like I say, I've got full faith in everybody there that I am in their minds. And um, as long as I perform they will hopefully give me an opportunity. So like I say, nothing, nothing's changed there. There's no bitter or hard feelings from any side. And um, I'm fully committed to Williams at the moment and just want to continue doing the best job possible. George, do you feel ready if the call came? Do you feel ready for that now? I mean, I, I'm thinking of one of your former teammates from the junior formulas, Antonio Giovinazzi, when he didn't get the call-up by Ferrari and Carlos Sainz did for 2021. He was saying, ah, I don't think I would have been ready. Do you think you're ready for that opportunity? I think I'm ready, yes. I think, obviously, every driver has confidence in themselves. I feel ready to, to make the step. I think I would learn, or I would have learned a huge amount from you know whoever I would have been teammates with, obviously. If it were to have been Lewis, you know, he's obviously one of the, the best ever and I would have loved to have a chance to, to drive alongside him to learn as much as I can. But equally, I know, sort of going through my career, looking back when I raced, you know, GP3, I thought I was ready for an F1 seat. 
And after I finished the following year in F2, I thought, you know, actually last year I wasn't ready and I'm a much better driver today. And then after a, a year in F2, you know, you look back and every year from then on in, you actually recognize that you're a much better driver today with everything you've learned than you were last year. So I think that today, I think I'm a better driver than I was this time last year. And I'm sure I'll think it again next year because all these little things you learn as you progress through your career, it helps you to become a better driver. And don't get me wrong, being put in the car next to one of the best drivers ever who's been in the same car, the same team for seven years with the same engineers, it would have been a tall order. And um, like I say, I've got confidence and faith in myself. Who knows how that would have, would have gone, but I believe um, hopefully, or I may look back in the future and say these things happen for a reason. You know, I'm absolutely grateful for the position I'm in. You say you get better each year. Do you get faster? I always ponder this thing. Do drivers get faster or do they just get more consistent? I think you become more complete. I don't think your outright speed changes. I think, you know, over a quality lap, if you've got it, you've got it. If you don't, you don't. The parts I learn is how to deal with other cars on an outlap of a qualifying session. If your tyres are a bit too cold, how you approach turn one, if you can't do your perfect outlap, how you treat the tyres during a race stint, how you give the feedback to the engineers to get more out of your car because there were races last year I led my engineers down the wrong path and made the car worse throughout the weekend. These are things I've learned from and rectified for this year. So, you know, my speed hasn't changed or I don't think driver's speed has changed, but I'm probably faster because I know how to deal with all of these certain situations to, um, to get the most out of it. On the subject of Williams then, how confident are you that they're on the road to recovery? You know, I'm, I'm very confident they're on the right tracks now. I think it's been proven over these past three races. We have made strides versus last year. Don't get me wrong, we're not complacent. We don't want to stop here. We want to keep going. But at this point last year, we didn't really have, or after this many races last year, we didn't really have a huge amount of positives to take away from anything. Right now, we can say our car is very quick in a qualifying format. It's not quite there in the race format, but we're in the fight with some more cars, which we weren't last year. And this sport is so difficult. I think every year is an evolution from the year before. And if you start on the right tracks, you just keep evolving, evolving and evolving. And I think that's arguably why Mercedes are just growing that gap at the front, because they were on the right tracks from day one and they can just keep on building and building and building. If you're on the wrong tracks, you have to start from from day one again and it's difficult to catch up with those guys who have been on the right tracks but I think we're only going to get stronger I think we're making more progress than our competitors and I think that can hopefully be the case throughout this year into next. Let's talk about you more as a driver is year two harder than year one do you feel the expectation level is higher this year? As a rookie you've always got an excuse which is I'm a rookie you know, I can make a mistake because I'm a rookie. That excuse is now gone. And don't get me wrong, I didn't ever look to use that excuse last year because, you know, I want to be the best and there should never be a reason to have an excuse. And if I do make a mistake, I want to sit there and put my hands up. But I guess now, you know, there isn't an excuse. So from that perspective, I guess the expectations are higher. You know, this season's been so incredibly bizarre that... Any of this, uh, we've not really thought about. 
we've gone into race one with an open mind and they've obviously just come thick and fast and from my side I've just been focused on driving as quick as possible and I don't get a chance to worry about expectations or what people are expecting of my on-track performance because I'm just too focused on getting the most out of myself and um, that works quite well for me. Are you getting more pressure from your teammate this year compared to last year? There's no doubt Nicholas is a very fast driver. I think he is incredibly underrated. In all of his junior career, he's had very, very strong drivers next to him. Alex Alban, Ollie Rowland, and he's been you know, on their pace or out-qualifying them sometimes here and there. And sometimes people don't really see this. And no doubt I've, I've really been surprised at his, his pace in uh, some of these races he's done so far. I think there have been certain reasons, like in Q1 in Austria, he got slightly caught out by the Giovinazzi's yellow flag. I think he, he had more potential there. He set a really fast lap time in, in Q1 again in Budapest. We were actually running slightly different things on our car, which we alternated between in the opening three races. So, you know, he's hot my heels this year and I cannot afford to, to slip up. So how he compares to Robert, I, I can't honestly give you a direct comparison, but he will definitely be right on my pace at points, I'm sure. What did you learn from Robert last year, Robert Kubitzer? I honestly learned a huge amount. I think he was so intelligent on the technical side of things. I've never come across somebody as good as him on that side. His memory, which is something... A lot of people wouldn't realise, but drivers need to have a good memory when you do a 70-lap race. You need to think back to things that happened on lap one or lap two or whatever. An hour and a half ago, when you're so focused, it's difficult. You know, he could think back and say, when I tested the car in Barcelona in 2017, we did this and this, I think this is what we need now to get the same effect on the car. And I'll be sat there like, blimey, that's, that's, quite, that's quite impressive. And he was, he was never wrong. He was never wrong. Like sometimes with my engineer, I'll be like, just check that because I, I can't believe that he can remember this like from two years ago. And he was right. Like I said, I learned a huge amount and how he spoke in the debriefs. It taught me that actually, if I want to be a more complete driver, I need to step up on that side of things. So I was very lucky and grateful to have Robert as a teammate. How did it feel to out-qualify him at every race? Did you expect that? No, I, I didn't expect that, to be honest. Obviously, it is a nice stat to have. It probably isn't something I'm going to put on my CV or I'm going to scream and shout about because ultimately, you know, we're, we're here to race, we're here to score points and neither of us are, are here to, to fight for last position. So, like I say, I'm, I'm not displeased with that stat and I would have been disappointed if it was the other way around, but equally, I'm not going to scream and shout about it. While we're on the subject of other drivers just wanted to ask you about a couple more Alex Albon you said at the weekend that you've known him for years when did you first meet and have you always been mates I'd say the first time we met or we were in the same paddock was 2008 I'd like to say Alex would have been in carefree which was the junior category I was in the cadet category and he was he was winning everything at the time and um, the time where we sort of really became friends for the first time was in 2011 so Alex was racing in KF1 in Europe which was the senior category I was in KF3 and it was me Alex and Charles were all teammates that season so looking back it seems it felt just normal at the time but the dream team <laughs> yeah the dream team is you know obviously a couple of little images 
uh, dating back to then, of us like all playing on our iPhones or something. And it was a great time. So that was 2011 where we started, became, we became friends and it was probably 2016 or 17 maybe when I moved to Milton Keynes. I lived in Milton Keynes for a year. Alex lives there. And um, yeah, I spent almost every day at his house and his, his mum and sisters were uh, making lunch and dinner for me. So it was awfully convenient, but <laughs> <laughs> we, no, we became really good friends there. And when I actually used to do the Mercedes sim work, 2016, if I used to do a back-to-back day, I'd stay at Alex's house overnight uh, before heading back to Brackley the following day. So, you know, that's where we became really good mates. And um, yeah, it's carried on since. Is it difficult to stay friends with a rival? There has to be a reason for you to stop being friends. I think, you know, we have obviously been rivals in Formula 2 was our closest year, but we never had an incident on track that caused us not to continue being friends. I think that will stay the same until... We're both in a you know front-running car and we have a crash together or something uh, for the lead or whatever. Even then, I'd like to think our relationship is good enough to sort of shrug off and move on. But I guess with like a Nico and Lewis, if it continuously happens, then it's difficult. But, you know, we're at very different points in our F1 career. You know, he's obviously winning races, being on the podium and he's at the front. I, I'm not in that at the moment. So... You know, we don't have any direct competition with one another. You proved at the weekend that you're a very good friend to Alex and you came up with a very powerful defence of him. I mean, I've known Alex for the last, you know, 15 years, been in the same paddock as him. You know, he's one of the best drivers we all race. You know, Max, Charles, all of us will say it. He's always, always been at the front in everything he's done and I don't know what the hell is going on and I, I feel really, really bad for him because... He's being made to look like an idiot and he's absolutely not. And he, he's won in everything he's done. So I don't know what's going on, but they need to uh, sort it out for him. Did you plan to say something or was that a sort of spur of the moment thing? No, it was definitely spur of the moment. I mean, I I was doing the um, post-quality interviews and I walked out of the, the TV pen with Alex. And, you know, I, I could just see he was obviously quite down and disappointed as, I guess, as anybody would be, you know, in his position Going out in Q2, obviously, he knows he and the car is capable of, of much more of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel bad for him to a certain extent. I think I'm not going to sit here and sort of repeat what I said. And But he's proper quick, right? You think Alex is proper quick? Absolutely. I mean, like, like I said to you, from the, from the moment I, I heard of Alex's album, he was winning. And he never stopped winning. And all of his casting career, he was always the top guy, you know. He won the European and World Championships in, I think it was 2010, against Max and a lot of other great drivers at the time. He won everything else he raced in and he was, he's always been at the front and you, know, you don't just lose that. So like I say, it's, it's, arguably it's not my position to say what is or what isn't going on. I think that's what Max thinks. Yeah, he is right <laughs> to a certain extent, but like I say, it was just my natural reaction when... Um, I got asked about Alex. It showed great loyalty, didn't it? But uh, funnily enough, hearing you talk about Alex reminds me of when we had Lando Norris on on uh, on the show, and he described being in awe of you when you were karting together. I think he said George was the man. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but um, yeah, I don't I don't know too much. I guess I mean when I was sort of in my prime of the cadet category. You know, Lando's a year, year and a half younger than me. So, you know, it's only natural when you are younger and at such a young age, you're not quite on it at the time. So uh, 
you know, Lando's glory years came one or two years after. So, yeah, I don't know, to be honest. It was, it's quite ironic because at the time I was battling a lot with Lando's brother, Ollie, in the cadet category. And um, he was out of the Norris brothers at the time because Ollie was at probably three years older than Lando. So he was the one who we were competing against. So when Lando came to the forefront, we was like, blimey, can you believe Ollie's brother's like at the front now? But obviously we went, then went on to know how good Lando was and he obviously stayed there from, from that point onwards. Let's talk a little bit about karting. Can you remember your first time in a kart? I can actually. And, and the effect it had on you? I mean, I, I, I can vividly remember, you know, when I was driving, I can't, I can't honestly sit here and say I got out and said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life and I absolutely love it. I'd been around the kart track my whole life as my older brother Benji used to kart. He's 11 years older than me. I used to um, go around all of the kart tracks in a little pedal tractor and I often used to have a water tanker on the back collecting water for the team for the radiators. And also I used to have a little trailer on the back and I used to go around collecting old tyres for a bit of fun that people leave outside of their awnings. And once I came back and with some tyres on the back and my dad was really angry with me. Like, I was almost in tears. George, George, you've, you've collected somebody's brand new tyres. So this four-year-old kid has wandered into somebody else's awning, collected their brand new set of tyres that's worth like £120. And I just put them on the back of my trailer and buggered off with them. So <laughs> they probably thought that was my tactic. So um, like I say, sort of driving and four wheels has been in my blood. At the age of seven, my dad bought me a go-kart and I went testing every Saturday at Pier 5 for a year until I was old enough to race. And that's where it all started. But could you say then that the racing bug actually came from brother Benji? Absolutely. I mean, without Benji... Who knows, I may have found racing anyway, but I was following him from a young age. I mean, my sister did some horse riding, so, you know, I guess I could have been a horse rider as well, but I think um, I had more excitement. It's all horsepower, isn't it? Yeah, it's all horsepower, I guess. So, no, it, I, I guess it all came from Benji. I'm very fortunate to have had him above me, older than me, to to learn from. Also for my family, I guess, as well, because... Equally, as I go through the ranks and learning how to handle a go-kart and this and that, you know, my parents went through that with Benji because when I raced, it was just dad and lad. It was none of the teams. My dad was my mechanic. My mum had a notepad writing down all the setups, tyre pressure, sprocket, you know, axle we've got in and everything. And it was just the three of us everywhere we went. And having Benji and the experience my parents had with him, they knew what motorsport was all about. They knew sort of the engine tuners to be with and what was sort of bullshit and what wasn't. And they had none of that. So from all aspects, I was very fortunate to have had Benji to, to learn from and to really help my career as a, as a younger kid. Is Benji even involved in motorsport now? No, no, he's not. He's not. He's, uh, he's got two kids now and he's, he's just living, living his life. He still claims he's the faster Russell. <laughs> of course he does. Of course he does. He, he always gives it the big one that he's the faster Russell. And he came to one of the races last year. And that was the first thing he said to Claire that, oh, I'm the faster Russell. You got the wrong Russell. <laughs> Claire turned around and said, all right, let's get you on the simulator. So we got him at, on the simulator at Williams at the start of this year. And he did about 40 laps. He ended up about three to four seconds off me. I don't know. Is that good or bad for a first time? I, I kind of had him over a little bit because I said to him, right, we normally do Barcelona on the simulator. So get on the PlayStation, 
learn Barcelona, you know, the rough breaking points, how the track goes, etc., etc. And we got to um, the sim the next day, and Ben, the simulator guy at Williams, said, "All right, so we're going to do Hungary today." <laughs> so he was on the back foot from the beginning, but. Yeah, I don't think Claire had too much to worry about. With Benji being quicker than me, that was uh, <laughs> that's for sure. George, it's it's an interesting thing. You're the youngest of three, aren't you? I am. And I am intrigued. When you look at the number of professional sportsmen and the number of them who are younger siblings, you can go to Johnny Wilkinson in rugby, Matthew Pinson in rowing, yourself, Jensen Button as well in Formula One. Do you think there's anything in that, in that you as a young kid almost having to learn things faster to keep up with your siblings? Now you say it, potentially, I think, I'd say the biggest factor of that was potentially my parents knowing the sport. You know, my, my parents had 10 years of experience of, of motorsport and go-karting before I even, you know, turned a wheel on a racetrack. And I'm sure that helped me massively because, like I said, it was dad and lad. My dad was doing the setups. My mum was writing things down. You know, my dad wouldn't have had a, a clue what Axel to put in or what tyre pressures to do 10 years prior. So I'm sure that was a big factor. But also, I guess, you know, Benji was you know a bit of a sort of driver coach and gave me advice when I was younger, how to approach things, how to deal with certain circumstances during a race weekend. So now you say, I guess so, potentially. I guess um, that competitive nature comes in just naturally, even though I'm... Um, some is younger than him you sort of want to uh, I guess outshine them yeah no I, th- oh, I do think there might be something in it and look and so you grew up in Norfolk has this always been your home where I'm zooming you now no it's not been I um so I actually grew up on the Fens near a town called Wisbeach I lived there for the first 16 years of my life so in the middle of completely nowhere so <laughs> it was uh is that Brundle country ish I was born in Kings Lynn, which is where, where Martin Brundle lives now. So I spent my first 16 years there. And when I was 18 years old, I, I moved out to, well, I moved to Milton Keynes to be close to Mercedes because I was, I was doing a lot of days on the simulator. I think I was doing 50 or 60 days a year on the sim. It might not have been that many, but it was an awful lot of days on the sim. And at the time it was a, a two and a half hour drive to and from Brackley for me. So I thought, you know what, I've, I've signed with Mercedes, I've got to give this my everything. And it will be more convenient for me being closer to Brackley. I'm closer to the, the team I raced for at the time, which was high tech in Formula 3. It all just works out a bit better. And I made the move. So, you know, a pretty young age, moving out. And um, I've been away ever since. Well, until lockdown. Until lockdown. So now... <laughs> now you've, you've moved back in. Now I'm back with my parents for lockdown. Uh, they've since moved. So it's been nice, to be honest. They've since moved out, have they? <laughs> we, we can't get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've moved back. They've moved out. So my mum is loving it, bless her. I think, um, you know, because I'm probably the youngest of, of three, you know, I've always been sort of the baby in the family and she's always loved looking after me. And the, the time I moved away, you know, it was, it, was, it was difficult for her, I guess, because, you know, that was the end of her, almost her little journey as such. But um, she's loving me being back, fully looking after me. I can't say I'm too uh, disappointed with it. I mean, it is quite nice having my washing done for me. And <laughs> no, nevertheless, I feel, I feel like it's the responsible thing for me to do. 
at the moment to be away from London, which is where I, I usually live, even though obviously cases are, are going down, I, I just feel more comfortable being back in my parents' house in the countryside. I've got my own little gym here, so I can just be locked away in between the races and do my thing. That's brilliant. And other influences on your career? I mean, I suppose heroes, not so much of an influence, but who were your heroes? Did you have any F1 heroes or indeed outside of motorsport? I mean, I didn't have a standout F1 hero growing up. As a young kid, I also used to have a little quad bike and a little Michael Schumacher race suit. At the time when sort of my family were watching Formula One, I was just in the background, not really sure what was going on. And obviously, Michael was winning everything. So I guess as a kid, you always favour either sort of your favourite colour or the one who's winning. So um, Michael Schumacher, Ferrari and red became my thing. But from then on in, like I say, no standout heroes. I was probably 16 when I learned that Formula One is incredibly difficult to reach. You know, I just presumed as a kid, just win races and you'll be fine and, and you'll make it. And I quickly learned there is a hell of a lot more that goes with being a Formula One driver than just your speed. And, and you need to be a very complete driver in, in all aspects. And I soon learned that and I, and I wanted to, to become a more complete driver. And I admired so many things from so many different drivers. And I thought, you know, I want to try and take a bit of everything from everyone. So let's say Lewis's outright speed with Montoya's aggressiveness with, I don't know, JB's um, dry and track mixed condition skills and equally as sort of marketing side of things as well. You know, Jensen was always the man in front of the camera in, in the last five, 10 years of his career. And, um, you know, everybody loved him for that. So I just wanted to become a more complete driver. And I learned that if I did want to make it, I need to start doing more. Yeah, I mean, I know Juan Pablo well. I wouldn't suggest mirroring him off track. <laughs> <laughs> love him, love him to bits. But <laughs> I, won't on that. I thought you were going to mention uh, some Williams drivers or something. Because actually, George, interesting, speaking to Claire in Hungary at the weekend, she said, you are as talented as any driver that's gone through the door at Williams. And we're including seven world champions there. How does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, that's... Um... I mean, you obviously don't rate them because you haven't mentioned them. Oh, you mentioned Montoya, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I do find it difficult reacting to, um, you know, great compliments. I don't like being arrogant and I don't like bigging myself up I, I try to do my talk on track but obviously you know Williams have had some incredibly good drivers and um, hearing her say something like that obviously you know means a lot to me I'd like to think it means I'm doing something right but I just need to um, like I say keep doing my talking on the track and and not be complacent as I think it's very easy in this sport to to think you've made it and, you know, I'm now an F1 driver and that's it. Life's complete. But you're very easy spat out of the other end if you stop performing. And there's been a lot of good drivers who, who haven't made Formula One who potentially could have. And a lot of very good drivers who have only lasted a year or two for whatever reason and gone out the other end. So, you know, I don't want to become complacent and I still want to keep pushing myself, you know, every single day I'm in, in the car to, to guarantee my spot in this sport. And how's the relationship with Claire with Frank even, Frank Williams? Yeah, the relationship with them is great. Um, you know, I've always had a very good and strong personal relationship with, with Claire and, and equally with Frank. 
you know, whenever I'm in the factory, we, we see each other, obviously not, not in recent times with everything that's going on, but always last year. I never realised how funny Frank was. We rarely talk about the racing, but we always have such a laugh and I, I probably can't repeat some of the things he, uh, we speak about, to be honest. I, I think I need to get permission from Claire <laughs> to, uh, to repeat some of the things we, we speak about because they are terribly funny and uh, <laughs> I'd love to share some of the stories. But Frank is such a great guy. I think people still are inspired by him when he's around the factory. He will always come down to the race bays, you know, go through the engineer's office or the aero department and just having him around you know, inspires people and reminds people what this team and the company is all about. I'm guessing that you excite Frank very much. You must remind him of a young Nigel Mansell and all the other young people he gave that opportunity to. Does he, Is there lots of Mansell chat? Um, <laughs> <laughs> or not? <laughs> we haven't actually spoken about Nigel that much, to be honest. A little bit here and there. Uh, but as I said, we, we actually don't speak about the racing that much, surprisingly. It's just a we just always have a, a great chat with one another. You know, he, he always asks what I'm up to at the moment, as in like, where am I off to? I'm off to the simulator or, and we'll have a brief chat about that. But the conversation soon gets sidetracked and we're, we're on to other topics. Well, look, let's talk, let's talk Silverstone, just, just to round this off, George. We've got um, British Grand Prix next weekend. It's going to feel different, no fans. But can I wind the clock back first and just say to you, can you remember your first trip to Silverstone? I do. My first trip to Silverstone was in 2009. I was stood on the outside of Cops and I just remember the start. I just really remember, I think it was one of the Red Bull guys was, was leading a race, going through Cops on, on lap one. The noise was just unbelievable. Um, you know, deafening back then, absolutely deafening. It felt like the ground was vibrating. You know, it was just such a buzz as a young kid in go-karts at the time I was doing well and and that was probably the point where I thought you know what I want to become a Formula One driver that it was that year or something sort of clicked in me and said you know that is what I want to do because that is that is pretty cool. So it's the noise and the speed I suppose Cops is a great place to see it as well. Absolutely I think for anybody who hasn't seen an F1 car live you have to go to Silverstone you you have to stand and the outside of Cops or the outside of Maggots and Beckett's and just see the speed the cars go through there because it's astonishing. And the change of direction, everything was, everything about it was, it was unbelievable. And I, and I think even today it's, the cars are just on rails and we go through Cops at 180 miles an hour almost, flat out, and it's just electric. How do you feel on the approach to cops? How do you feel? What are you saying to yourself? Is it? Well, it depends how good the car's feeling. What I'm saying to myself, <laughs> if it's feeling <laughs> nailed, I'm uh, pretty excited. If it's if it's all over the place, I'm like, oh, not this again. <laughs> <laughs> but with the with the wide open expanses of Silverstone, does it feel outrageously quick on the approach to cops? Yeah, ridiculous. I mean, that whole section, cops, Mangets, Beckett's. It is unbelievably fast. You're just going in there flat out. You know, in the current era of F1 cars, you know, in qualifying, it, it's easy flat out. I think for half of the race last year, it was flat out for us, which is ridiculous to think. And Maggots and Beckett's, you're flat for you have half of it. And, uh, you know, the top guys in the quickest car, I don't think you're even breaking through there now. So you're not breaking all the way from Luffield all the way around until the last corner. Even Stowe, I think it's just a tiny 
dab of the break. So you, you can't really put it into words, really. It's, it's like being, you know, on the fastest roller coaster of your life and um, you're just being chucked around all over the place and incredibly quick. And it just gives you a real buzz to drive. It's something you, you're excited by, I think. There's a couple of tracks and a couple of corners on the current F1 calendar, which you don't get that excitement that you do at a place like Silverstone or Suzuka or Spa. Is Silverstone the best track in Formula One? I think it is. I think it's tied with Suzuka. Suzuka was incredible. Obviously, there's a lot of similar traits between the two. I think the thing that makes Suzuka maybe slightly better is the, the lack of runoff. It's grass and gravel. On a quality lap, when you're giving it everything, you know, to be right on the limit, you're, you're putting your balls on the wall sort of thing. Whereas at, at a track with a bit of runoff, you know you can still easily make a mistake and you can easily be off into the wall. But there's always that little bit of extra margin if you were to make a mistake. And I think all of the drivers are in agreement with that. So obviously safety is incredibly important, but there's got to be a mid-ground somewhere. Quite an old school approach. Yeah, I guess. I think... You just feel that within the car, I guess. It's like if you're um, obviously not breaking the speed limit, but if you're on a back road with you know tight bends and bushes and you can't see what's around the corner, you're just unsure of what is there. And um, Whereas if you're on a big open dual carriageway or whatever, things are very relaxed. Do you get a, a similar buzz out of Monaco and Baku and help me here, I'm trying to think, maybe into Lagos as well? Yeah, I would say... The, the main ones are obviously Suzuka, Monaco, Singapore. They're probably the three that you get a real buzz from because you know that at any moment, if you do make the slightest of mistakes, there are huge consequences. Uh, Melbourne as well. Melbourne is one of these circuits that is, is incredibly cool. I, I didn't quite appreciate how difficult that was for an opening race last year. Obviously, we've all had the winter off coming into that very bumpy tight twisty but equally very fast at points a very difficult opening circuit so very gutted i i missed it this year because i was i was really excited for that really interesting um do you have a real feel for the history of the sport because silverstone 2 is going to be the 70th anniversary grand prix of formula one are you interested in driving a car from another era would that interest you i've got a lot of interest in driving Nigel's car from 92. I was very disappointed when I saw Williams were doing a track day. Uh, I think it was last year somewhere. I think it was in Jerez. And somehow I, I didn't hear about it. And they were driving the 92 car. I was like, oh, you know, I'd love to have had the opportunity to drive that. Or from the early 2000s, you know, those cars with the, the V10s just absolutely screaming, I'm sure, were, were incredible. But absolutely, you know, I think all of the drivers, you know the history of Formula One, what it's been through, how the sport was 40 years ago or so when it was you know, life or death. I was talking about it recently with my trainer when I sat in my little driver room in, in Hungary because I had a photo of Keke Rosberg on the wall. Uh, maybe it was Nelson Piquet, maybe. I think it was Nelson Piquet, sorry, from when he won a Grand Prix in the 80s around Hungary. And just looking at the car and thinking, if you went off, you may not be coming back again. And those guys must have been you know, equally bonkers, but massive respect to them because every time you jump in the car, you don't know what's going to happen on, on your next lap. And you know, equally, obviously, now it's still very dangerous, the sport. And you know, we've had some horrific incidents over the last few years. 
But I think um, the way the sport has progressed is incredible to see. Do you stop and think a lot about the dangers or just push on? No, I think you push on. I think it's interesting how how your body works, really. As soon as you've got the helmet on, everything sort of disappears. And and equally, sort of before a race or a quality session, sometimes you can obviously be quite nervous. But as soon as the helmet's on and you drive out the pit lane, everything's disappeared and you're just in your groove and, and, and doing your thing. So, yeah, like I say, I, I don't like to think about the dangers. I don't like to think about some of the horrific incidents that have happened because... You know, they, they have happened to people I know closely and um, it, it is awful, but that's most of the sport and, and we all know it's a dangerous sport. When you think of karting, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel Formula One is, is one of the safest places to go. Well, not just racing, almost anywhere, any road, anywhere in the world. Formula One now is so safe. Yet you guys go karting a lot still, don't you? Which is probably almost the least safe <laughs> in a way, isn't it? How do you reflect on karting do you still use karting as part of your training i i loved my days in karting it was so pure so much fun just simpler it was just a simpler time when you know after a session there was sort of no debriefs no analysis or any of that because it wasn't a hobby but you know at the time karting you know i think now things are much more professional there but i would finish a session and I'd go and jump and play in a cardboard box with a couple of my mates when I was like eight years old or whatever, or in the later years, you know, run off to somebody else's awning and play a game on the iPhone or whatever. So, you know, things were just different back then, and we had so much fun. And as I said, it was just great racing, so many laps, and I loved my time there. And I, and I still jump in carts today, and I still love it. The only thing... I don't love it. I always end up with massive bruises on my hips and ribs after any day. It feels like I've been beaten up by Mike Tyson or someone after a day at a go-kart now. So, uh. George, that's interesting because Senna said that his most enjoyable time in motorsport was karting because I think he used the same word as you, pure, the purity of it. It was just so pure. And, and like I said, it was just simple. It's, I guess it's footballers could say, you know, go into a your local pitch and having a kick around with your mates is, you know, similar for us jumping in a go-kart and having a bit of fun. And even today, jumping in a rental car, even when I go with like Alex and a couple of the other guys who we're obviously professional drivers, we are just, you know, dying with laughter when we, we drive these things. because It's just so much fun. So I guess with anything, when things are more relaxed, you always have a bit more fun, but then as soon as you get to a track and it's dead serious and you're there to do a job, Obviously, we have a lot of fun, which I think is important. I think, you know, we're away for 21 weekends a year in a normal season. If you can't have a bit of fun along the way, you know, you're going to really struggle. And I think enjoying your time, having good fun, socialising with sort of your friends around the paddock or with your engineers and, and your mechanics, you know, it's so important for everybody's morale. And I think that's what makes Formula One so great. It's like a second family, isn't it? Do you do much sim racing? We've got a weekend off this weekend. Are, are, are you going to be sim racing just to keep yourself sharp? Or? I, uh, I won't be sim racing this week. No, I've got, <laughs> I've got other plans. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed those couple of months in lockdown when we did all of the, the sim racing, the virtual racing, the competitiveness, everything about it. I, I just enjoyed it and it, was, and it was good fun. It was a good laugh with the guys. 
Alex said you only won because you practiced more than anyone else. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> obviously he's got all the, all the excuses, hasn't he? So, but he's probably true to a certain extent. I mean, <laughs> if you want to do well, you've got to practice, haven't you? Practice makes perfect. Be honest, George, did that sim racing help prepare you for the season starting for real or was it just a bit of fun? I definitely don't think it hurt because we all said it. We obviously, we all did a lot of practice. But when it came to qualifying in the sim racing, we all were nervous. And it's incredible, you know, this is just a computer game, just a bit of fun. Yet, I think because we all put so much practice in, when you've only got those 15-minute qualifying sessions, you're like, oh my God, you know, I've only got two or three laps to do the business now. And that's the same in reality. We fly across the world, we put all this preparation, all this practice in, but when it comes to qualifying, You've only got one lap in Q1 to do the job. Generally, you've only got one lap in Q2 to do the job as well. So you think you put weeks and weeks and weeks of preparation in, hours of traveling around the world for 90 seconds that will make or break your weekend. And that's, when you think of it like that, that's quite a lot of pressure on your shoulders when you leave the pit lane to do the business. And um, I guess doing that virtual racing just helped me keep in that rhythm of right, this is quality. I know I can do the job, but I've got to do it when it counts. And um, that helped me just to, to keep in the groove. Two things. One is you thrive on that pressure, don't you? Isn't that one of the reasons you're a racing driver? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I knew Hungary was going to be a strong qualifying for us. And I was so excited before qualifying. You know, I was absolutely buzzing. But, you know, when you go into the garage and all the boys are like, right, Q2 today, are we doing? I was like, Let's see, let's see. But, you know, I was, I was so excited for it, just to, to go out there, throw the car around. And, uh, yeah, I, I guess I thrive on that pressure. But, you know, equally, you know, one little slip up and uh, you're here at a zero sort of thing. So it is difficult. You can't get too carried away and too cocky with yourself. And I think it's important not to try and overachieve. I think um, try and do something that you wouldn't do naturally. I, I know what if things are all stable, what we can do as a team and what we're capable of. There's no point trying to push it even further because I know that if I do go over the step, you're going to lose it. We do all these laps of practice and you never go, you know, 5%, you don't push 5% harder. So I've sort of got the philosophy, well, you know, I can do the job in practice or whatever. You don't need to change your approach. You know, I don't think Roger Federer changes his approach when he's in a final versus the quarterfinals or whatever you know you just got to just keep on doing your thing and I think that's actually very difficult to do just remind myself just go out there just do your thing you know you don't need to do more or less you know just just do your thing because I know and I know what we can achieve by just being at the level and that is you know 99.9 percent Roger Federer, by the way, another younger sibling. Is he? There we go. (laughs) Look, final thoughts is that another thing on that sim racing that was wonderful for us to see was the relationship you have with the likes of Alex, with Charles Leclerc. It felt very real, the banter and and the friendship. Absolutely. I think often a lot of our personalities are hidden behind the camera because it's difficult. I've had bad experiences with press where... I would say something and it would be twisted into a headline that was not intended whatsoever. So when I approach my next interview, I'm like, well, I've got to be so reserved here because last time I said something just natural and it was twisted into something completely out of context and made me look a bit of an idiot. It 
didn't you know the team potentially didn't appreciate it um and you know equally with what i said about alex at the weekend you know next thing there's headlines that potentially make it look like i'm slate and alex which was not the intention whatsoever so that is why a lot of drivers come across as mundane or vanilla because we can't afford to to have that which is just such a shame because we want to express our true feelings yet this sim racing gave us the perfect opportunity to do this because we've got the webcam on people are watching us we can be ourselves for a couple of hours have a laugh with each other that gave people the opportunity to see our true colours, our true personality. And I really enjoyed that, to be honest, just to be able to get my personality across and who I am across, because in all truthfulness, it's been something I've, I've struggled with in the last 18 months to, to find that line to, to show people you know, my true self without coming across arrogant or coming across in a way that people can twist into a into a certain headline or without exposing yourself really i suppose and exactly and without exposing myself so it's been such a great platform for us to to show that and um yeah we had a lot of fun along the way do you think it would work if you were able to talk to the other drivers in a race <laughs> well <laughs> now i know that sounds ridiculous but in a real race do you think that would work because it'd be a brilliant tv spectacle it doesn't sound ridiculous because I, I thought about it. I mean, we had so much fun and banter when we were racing for fun and banter. But as soon as we got to the virtual professional Grand Prix, you know, we were dead serious. And, uh, you know, I wasn't listening to their intercom. They wasn't listening to mine. And we were focused on the job. And because it was competitive, we were competitive. And if somebody did something a bit out of order, a bit wrong, I think like when uh, Lando crashed into Charles's brother, Charles's reaction wasn't quite the same as what it would have been a couple of weeks before when we were doing it for fun, which is only natural. I think probably the biggest thing I thought F1 could take away from that is somehow try and show our faces moving forward when we drive, because obviously... How are we going to do that, though? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, we've got IndyCar, which has obviously got the the aero screen. This is something like a... I don't, I don't know how they could do it, like I say, but I do think being able to see the driver's facial expressions, how they're reacting when they're fighting. That look of concentration, it's almost quite intimidating looking at you guys. <laughs> it's like when when we see those onboards from, you know, 2010 or wherever, when Sebastian Vettel uh, was on like a quali lap in Abu Dhabi, it was at night, he had a clear visor on and you can see the look of concentration on his eyes. You know, that was awesome and people love that. You know, we obviously can't wear a clear visor everywhere because the sun's too bright. So, How much bandwidth, how much spare bandwidth do you have in the car to be able to talk to a rival, for example? Or are you constantly talking to the team? How often do you talk to the team on the radio? Is it every lap? Yeah, it's, it's every lap we talk, I talk to the team. I'd like to think about a bit of spare bandwidth. It depends the circumstance you're in. If you're, if you're under pressure from a guy behind or attacking the guy ahead or you're managing tyres, brakes, engine temperatures. You know, you're doing everything you can just to focus on your job. Um, but if things start to get a bit settled down, I remember when I used to race in the junior formulas, my dad used to go and stand around the track to watch. And I don't know why, but I went through a phase of like spotting him on the track. It wasn't distracting me. Obviously, back then, you only had to focus on driving flat out. And I was just quite relaxed and... Um, 
you're managing to do it like subconsciously almost, I guess. It's actually something me and my trainer try and practice a lot on the sim. We do sort of maths games while I'm driving on the sim or number games. So I'll try and count down from a hundred, um, count down from a hundred to zero in threes while driving flat out. And you end up finding yourself just driving without realizing you're just doing everything subconsciously. Is that because you visualize a lap? Before you leave the pits? No, I'm definitely not one of those guys to sit there, eyes closed, uh, you know, visualising a lap. Again, I've got the sort of mentality that every time on track, it's different. The temperature's different. Fuel load might be different. The tyres are different. If you've got a car three seconds ahead or six seconds ahead, that's different. The wind has a massive effect. You know, the wind is never the same. So I went through, it was probably the toughest year of my career, 2015. And I did so much preparation that year, watched over every single video possible, every piece of data, writing things down about how the previous year driver approached a certain corner. And every time I entered the track, I had a preconceived idea of how I had to drive. And I was becoming almost like a robot trying to force myself to drive how he drove. And it just didn't work for me. And the following year, I just said, right, I'm, I'm forgetting all of that. I'm just going to go out. I'm just going to drive as quick as I can. And I ended up doing things that my teammates at the time thought I was having them over because they would ask me questions like, why are you doing this in that corner? And I said, well, I don't really know, to be honest. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? It's just, well, you know, I had a bit of oversteer, so you went on the throttle a little bit or a bit of understeer, so I held the brakes and I did this. And it just sort of all happened naturally. And I think that was a real turning point in my career in single seaters when I just let, let it flow and I knew what I had to do in certain circumstances and I was always ready to adapt and not have any major preconceived ideas how to approach a corner or a lap. It's all instinctive and I'm sure that's why you're so good in the wet. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I'll let you comment on that. And <laughs> I would just nod, but obviously this is a podcast. Absolutely nodding. So uh, but we've we've seen proof of that, haven't we? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Fascinating, George. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, look, I think everyone listening to this will agree with me when we say, look, we really hope that Williams get it together, and next year, you know, you're going to be up there. I was going to say fighting with your friend Charles Leclerc, but you're almost doing that now. <laughs> <laughs> but getting closer to the front and um when we do another one of these in in a few years time we're, we're talking about wins and poles and all those things that you deserve george great to chat to you thanks a lot thank you very much no it's been a pleasure George gave us a bucket load of wonderful anecdotes, didn't he? From emailing Mercedes boss Toto Wolff in the early years in an effort to get on the Mercedes Junior program, to his relationship with Alex Albon and Lando Norris, and how he's become a better driver over the last 18 months. There was so much in that chat for us to enjoy. If anyone listening was unsure of George's potential, they'll be a lot more convinced now. What a star. George, thanks for your time and thanks to Williams as well. It was great to catch up and I look forward to seeing you at Silverstone next weekend. Well, before I go, I've just got time to rummage through the virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about the show. 
And you loved my chat with Willie T. Ribs last week. What a story that man has to tell. Adrian Nolan said this, I'm not sure what I like the most about Willie T. His life story, his stories, or his impersonations of Nelson Piquet and Muhammad Ali and people like that. What a great episode. Adrian, thanks. And those impersonations were great, weren't they? Particularly Ali's. I mean, that story about them running around Hyde Park in London together. Gold dust. Mike McPherson said this, Brilliant chat with Willie T. Ribs. As a black man and fan of motorsports, I've always appreciated Ribs's candor and feisty demeanor. Means a lot to have him as a role model. All of the above, Mike. Willie is a great role model who won't give up the fight for diversity and inclusion. And Jamie Platt said, After listening to your interview with Willie Ribs, I'm angry at what Formula One lost out on. The talent, the ego, the, the absolute badassery. I wonder how different the sport would look if he'd been given the shot he deserved in Formula One. And he went really well in that test, Jamie. He could have been very quick, which is what's doubly frustrating about it. Hopefully, there will be many more like Willie T. Ribs in the future. Unfortunately, that's it for this week. Please accept my apologies if I didn't read out your message, but please keep getting in touch because I read each and every one of your messages. If you want to drop me a message, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And don't forget, we love reading your reviews of the show on the various podcast platforms. Thanks again for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>